Well, would you please be finding the book of Amos, uh, page 900, and, well, actually, probably worth turning page to begin to page 917. Well, there is a word of condemnation in our prophet uh, tonight. And I can best put it like this. Nigeria, you have allowed the terrorism of Boko Haram to grow unchecked in your land. Thailand, you have hardened your hearts against the pitiful groups of migrants landing on your shores from the north and the west. Argentina, you have tolerated the rise of political corruption to protect a dodgy government. All of you, you stand condemned. Russia, you have invaded Ukraine. America, you've refused to control guns on your streets. Greece, you have spent as though there were no tomorrow. All of you. You stand condemned. Northern Ireland, the seven million pounds in a safe in a Belfast law firm as a payoff to a politician. Your financial corruption stinks. Scotland, you have wanted the power of independence without the responsibility. Both of you, you stand condemned. England, only England is without sin. Well, that's not exactly what Amos says. But the power of what he says depends upon that kind of joke. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Amos circle around the world known to his hearers. Syria, Gaza, and Tyre, you places further off stand condemned because you have been ruthless, grasping, and faithless to your commitments. And then further in, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, all countries to the east of the River Jordan, you places nearer stand condemned because you too have been ruthless, grasping, and faithless. Uh, how, how many of you here tonight come from the West Country? Okay. Now, I guess, thank you, Richard, I guess we're in the South here rather than the North. How many of you come from the North? Come on, be proud. Okay, good. Well, if you come from the West Country, uh, you'll know the power of prejudice, I remember Richard's wife, Hilary, saying, have you ever heard anyone intelligent on the BBC coming from Cornwall? Uh, She does, and she gets very frustrated at the way that uh, the West Country accent is used to portray stupidity, largely. Um, And those of us who come from the North um, know what it's like to feel like an outsider when we come down here. 
we know what it's like to suffer hill deprivation. And um, going on in Amos, uh, there is this regional tension because he came from the south. Tekoa, it's just outside of Jerusalem. He came from the south, and God had called him uh, to the north. Now, you imagine what it's like to be in one part of the UK and to be sent to the other part of the UK with a message of judgment on them. Imagine how welcome that is going to make you feel. That's probably how welcome Amos felt, but that's who he is. He says quite clear, I didn't want to be a prophet. God took me from being a, um, I was looking after trees, fruit trees. Um, I didn't want to do this, you know, but God called me and I had to do it. He's a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, exercising his prophetic ministry mostly in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's, uh, it's about 170 years since the one united house that was called Israel. This is where it gets complicated. It was called Israel, uh, but actually only the northern kingdom kept that name. Two tribes in the north and the other ten tribes in the south became Judah. And they loathed each other. Um, northern and southern Italy, northern and southern England, um, uh, Basques and French, Basque and uh, Spanish. They are nothing compared to the loathing going on between these two parts of the ancient kingdom. It was a time of wealth in both countries, but the wealth was achieved partly at the expense of the weak and the vulnerable. There was lots of corruption. It was a high economically, but a deep low in terms of their relationship to God, to Yahweh. That God, whose name is Yahweh, who appears in your little capital letters in your Bibles as Lord. And Amos cleverly circles his world. Sometimes we think that uh, prophecy, ancient prophecy, is this kind of spontaneous eruption. No, it wasn't. It was always very cleverly crafted. And Amos, cleverly under the inspiration of God, circles his world. But in order slowly to home in like a spiral on where the worst of the problems really lie. Perhaps you thought, as that first list was read out, Nigeria, Thailand, Argentina, well, they're all far away and they're a bit dodgy. They would have thought the same about Syria, Gaza and Tyre. But they really hated Edom, Ammon and Moab because they were closest. And they would have cheered Amos as he laid into those three countries. Then from the Judean prophet come words of condemnation for the southern kingdom. It's like Tom Wynne, a northerner, coming down south and then, and then complaining about the north. They'd have loved that. Everyone else was adrift on a sea of God's condemnation. They alone, they were thinking, we are escaping all this. Listen, listen to him going on. It's fantastic. They are really in deep mess. Only the north is truly favoured. Except that's not how it worked out. Amos spends longer attacking northern Israel than he does any other country. Northern Israel is the worst. England, as it were, does not escape. Not by any means. Well, let's look in some detail then. The southern kingdom of Judah is there, described in chapter 2 and verses 4 to 5. And each time he's gone through, the, the formula is the same. For three sins of Judah, I've been very tolerant. 
I've forgiven them, but for the fourth, there really is an accounting coming. The other countries have uh, been ruthless, grasping, and faithless, but as God in Amos considers his own people back in Judah, there are two even more terrible offenses that emerge. They're in Judah, and then actually we'll see them uh, in Israel as well. The second half of chapter 2 and verse 4, they have rejected the law of the Lord. And it's echoed in in verse 12 of the same chapter. You made the Nazarites drink wine. The Nazarites were a kind of sect devoted to the Lord. And they didn't drink, they didn't drink, they didn't cut their hair. They had gift of prophecy by tradition. And also in verse 12, uh, you forbade people from prophesying, even though they were prophets. Both houses have comprehensively rejected the revelation that comes from God of his ways and his character. What did that look like? Well, in in Judah, verse 4, they've rejected, they've replaced the law with the traditions of the ancestors, pursuing false gods. Now, know the sense of a principle there in verse 4, as though, left to ourselves, confronted with the revelation of God's word, it is kind of native territory to us to pursue the way of our ancestors, of the tradition False gods, or if you look at the footnote footnote B, uh, at the bottom of page 917, I know it's there, I can't see a thing down that in, to type that small, but I know it's there because I saw it when I was, had my glasses on. It says lies. False gods and lies inevitably lead you astray. They must do. And the important thing to register is that there isn't a human being on the planet that can ever achieve truth on their own. We, by our, on our own, we get to false gods and lies. It needs a revelation from God to get us to the truth. Now, here's a modern illustration. Uh, needs to be treated slightly carefully, in case you think I'm saying more than I am. Uh, this week saw the uh, establishing by the Supreme Court in the United States of the right to equal marriage in every state of the Union, trumping the state legislation against gay marriage that existed still in some states. Um, now, I'm not... Con- commenting here on the rights and wrongs of the legislation. But the American context is quite clearly, because it has to, following the ancestors. They have a constitution. They have to follow it. In the 18th century, the American state was founded upon the Enlightenment ideals of equality and on the principle that I am at liberty to do whatever I personally choose to do so long as it does not harm others. It is a turning to the ancestors and a clear turning away from God's revealed will. There is, even if I disagree with it, there is a very strong case for equal marriage. But no one seriously pretends that it seriously follows from God's holy scriptures. Uh, If you're going to make the argument, you have to work around them. Otherwise, you're going to end up with tremendous distortion and neglect of what they say. It's a following of the ancestors and a rejection of God's revealed will. But it's just an illustration. Don't focus on the illustration to the exclusion of what it's illustrating. They've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. And note how comprehensive that rejection is. 
The words here are clear in verse uh, 4. They have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Now, if you were here for some of our uh, other material in uh, the Old Testament, you'll have picked up what the law is about. When um, uh, an ancient prophet or some other speaks about the law, unfortunately for us, it kind of conjures up pictures of the old Bailey or parking fines, and it's not really what the law of Israel meant. It was something much more personal, relational. It was someone guiding you and, and kind of walking you uh, through a, a revelation of God's character. But then also in verse 4, it talks about the decrees. Now, the word there is actually, the, the, it's the engraving. That's, the, that's what the basis of the word. It means there's this revealed truth that simply cannot change. It is unbending and absolute. Now, of course, in our world, we know that if we held to an unbending absolute truth, there would be times when we just longed for something personal and relational and understanding because the law doesn't always get it right. By contrast, if we just said it was kind of everyone doing the sense of right that they have, we'd long for something absolute and solid. But here in the law of God, we get both. And that must be a marvellous thing. We sang, I can only imagine. Wouldn't it be an incredible thing to know that you were in touch with an approach, let's call it that, where you were personally guided, instructed in a relational path that depended on your fellowship with God, while at the same time understanding where things must stay as they are in his purpose and goodness. It is a comprehensive rejection what they've done. They've rejected the law. They've not kept his decrees. They weren't interested in either. And Israel is no better. The living word, I mean northern Israel, verses 6 to 16, no better. The living word of God from the prophets is completely stifled. Perhaps that's why God had to send them a prophet from down south, because they wouldn't listen to their own. We don't know. Both houses have rejected. This is new. This isn't Gaza, Tyre, Sidon, uh, any of the others now. This is new. Both houses of Israel have rejected the words of God. Not only so, but especially with Israel, the northern kingdom, verses 6 to 16, we hear that they also have rejected God's acts of salvation. Not only his words of revelation, but his acts of salvation. So, verses 9 to 11. Look what I did for you. I destroyed the Amorite before you. Amorite is such a... It's so frustrating that we have to use these words. It means a Syrian and the moment you think Syrian, you're back in this world today, aren't you? Amorite is kind of, who knows where the Amorites were and whatever. They were the Syrians. I destroyed them. Though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. I brought you up out of Egypt. I did this for you. Look what you have done in return. Well, let's look more closely at what they have in fact done. Verses 6 and the first part of 7. Again, for three sins of Israel, even four, I, won't turn my, I, won't, I will not turn back my wrath. 
They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. This is that grasping oppression, the sin of covetousness. They sin against others. They they keep them down. They oppress them. They grasp ruthlessly. Then 7b, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Not just a sexual sin. They would have done so in the context of going up to the temple because the temple was where the Baal fertility gods were worshipped and there were the fertility girls ready to give you a good time because if you had a good time with the fertility gods then the Baals would be nice to the land and there would be fertile crops. That's how it worked. And so the sin of idolatry. Uh, I think Benta mentioned it for our own time. The sin of grasping oppression. The sin of idolatry, of faithlessness as they sin against Yahweh. Because this is temple idolatry, fertility rights. And then in verse 8, the sin of self-advantage. They go to altars and to houses of God's. Uh, altars and houses that should speak of Yahweh. And they take with them clothes and drink stolen from others. As they've rejected the revelatory words from God, they've rejected the saving acts of God. And I don't know if you made the connection as I was going through, but these are exactly the sins of Damascus and Tyre and Gaza. From the fact that God will destroy the fortresses of Judah erected for protection. Uh, verse 5 there, to guard the fruits of rescue and salvation. We can assume Judah's in the same boat. Israel is no better off than Nigeria, Argentina and Thailand. And so God's going to punish, verses 13 to 15. Punish for ingratitude. You rejected the revelation in words and you rejected the salvation in acts. His people have had his rescue, his promise, his defense, his example, his fellowship, his friendship, and supremely his word. And so a terrible judgment is coming on them precisely because of their privilege. The bravest warriors will flee naked, we're told in verse 16. And so to the reading that we actually had as the reading, chapter 3 and verses 1 to 10. And now we get a warning to the whole family, verse 1. Now, we just need to be careful. It's, O people of Israel, the whole family. So now what Amos is doing is talking about Israel as the northern and the southern kingdoms together. So if he talks about Israel, no longer just the north. It's them both together, the whole family that I brought up out of Egypt. The principle is confirmed there in verse 2. They were elect, they were chosen, they were redeemed from Egypt. They were identified by a loving name. And therefore the judgment is all the more terrible. And then we get a very odd structure. I'm not sure I'd have noticed it if Will hadn't preached this morning on a, an, on a sandwich structure in Mark's Gospel. But there's a kind of sandwich structure goes on here. The bread of our sandwich is uh, verse 3 and verse 7. And the meat is verses 4 to 6. And we need to pay attention to the meat first, verses 4 to 6. 
In each case, there's a pair of sayings in which there is evident peril, and then it's clear that the blow has fallen. The lion growls because he has prey. The trap is sprung because the bird has flown in. The city falls because the trumpets signaling danger have blown. But verse 3 does not have a pair. It's only one part. And actually, verse 7 doesn't have a pair. It's only one part, which suggests that actually... Verses 3 and 7 are the kind of bread around this meat sandwich. The two partners in verse 3 have walked together. Based on what was just said in verse 2, that's God and his people. Well, okay, then, then what happens? Because two, pe- two have walked together. Well, what happens, verse 7, is that the sovereign Lord reveals his will. Now, that's extraordinary, because all the others in that meat sandwich were final, were terrible judgment. But now what we're being told is that the blow has not quite fallen in verse 7. There is still time. The lion has roared, verse 8, and the prophet must speak. But there is still time for the word to cause action. What I want to do now is just tidy up the explanation of what's going on through the end of what we heard to verse 10, and then come back to apply some things. Those hated most of all were Ashdod, which is one of the cities of Gaza, uh, of the Philistines, and Egypt, the land of slavery. But those two are going to be called as judging witnesses against God's own people because God's own people do not know how to do right. Verse 10. Whatever the judgment, it's going to be terrible and it's going to be publicly humiliating. And of course, in only a few short years, the northern kingdom of Israel was obliterated and Judah was dealt a blow from which it never recovered. It was taken to exile and downfall. And so, you say to me, Alan, where's the good news? I can hear that's what you're saying. Because, of course, we have no right to open up the scriptures for God's people unless we speak of good news as well. And there is good news here. I reckon there's five, there may be more, and I don't think they've all got the same weight. So I'm going to run through them, and that's where we'll end. So if you've got limited attention span left, know that you've got five things to think about. Firstly, there is time. Maybe not much, but it is God's nature to park people in front of his word, point to his holy character, point to his people's sinfulness, and to do so while there is time. This is not unrelieved bad news for God's ancient church or for his church of today. We are given time, not to play around or faff about a bit more, but to attend to God's word. Secondly, Uh, The judgment uh, is against a church that was desperately needy, it was complacent, it lacked the true knowledge of God, it lacked the true repentance of heart, it was full of corruption and had departed from truth, it was proud and self-satisfied. Of course, the church of God is always like that, always. 
God mercifully gives us a permanent picture of the church, which will always have something of those characteristics. And he does so because he permanently and equally mercifully always calls us to a state of repentance. First, there is time. Secondly, the remedy is always the same, repentance. And that's good news. Thirdly, you might say, well, that's for the church. What about me? Well, of course, you are the church. This is not addressed to the high and mighty leadership. This is addressed by someone who wasn't a professional prophet, certainly not a professional priest. He was a nobody. He was a fruit farmer. I don't mean to be rude to fruit farmers in particular, you understand. And I'm sorry if the tape records me saying, you you, you know what I mean, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, But he was a nobody. He, He clearly expressed that sense of, I'm just a nobody. It's not addressed to the high and mighty leadership, but it is a reminder that it would be possible to be, as it were, deep cleaned from what sin does to us and in us and through us. Church is not something we come to, it's what we are. We are collectively responsible for what the church of God means and does, whether that's near at hand, perhaps you're part of a small group, that's church, or amongst the great and the good. It is a year in which the Church of England holds its elections to its governing body, the General Synod. We personally may despair of ever having that personal deep clean in practice. Yes, we come week by week, perhaps day by day, and say sorry to God, but we really never know that gift of repentance and pardon. And this text suggests that we can know it, indeed that we must know it. This text warns us about sin. There are only two places where your sin and mine can be faced. One is the eternity of hell, and the other is the cross of Jesus Christ. Hell or the cross. It's good news when we are told there is time to repent and avoid hell because we can turn to Jesus Christ. Fourthly, seven and a half centuries before Jesus, the church of God was in need. The faithful remnant needed to be equipped for service. The unbelievers needed to be confronted with the reality of sin and the wider world needed telling that there is a God who lives and reigns. And what did God do about that? Pretty heavy-duty stuff. The remnant to equip, the unbelievers to warn, and the wider world to be alerted. What did God do? He sent an Amos, a fruit farmer, from the wrong part of town. This is a weekend in which the Church of England ordains its ministers. And a number of you, I know, have been at uh, big cathedral services this weekend already. At this weekend of church ministry, remember, Amos was a nobody who didn't even want to do this. But he knew that the word of God was the word of God. Are we ever without the need for Amos's? And is that you?
And finally, fifthly, we must say something about the good news that is Jesus. After all, we have the final revelation of the word of God in Jesus of Nazareth.